0: Now, I am way back here. I feel like I'm in the middle of the choir loft because uh, we couldn't quite get this overhead to work right with that screen up there. We're going to work on that this next week and see what we can do. And I know part of the picture is down below, so if you can't see, you might want to move a little bit. But that was the best we could work things out at this point in time. Um, I want to begin this intense, in-depth, chronological study of the greatest life ever lived, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, by quoting from a small literary piece about Jesus, which was written by a man named James Francis. Now, some of you might be familiar with this. It's called One Solitary Life, and it is in your book, so you can follow along with me as I read it. Speaking of Christ, he writes, Here is a young man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen, and the man wrote this a hundred years ago, so now we could say twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as that one solitary life. And to all all that we could say what? Amen. That's very true. Mr. Francis is very, very right. Above every man and above even all men and women, and boys, and girls put together has the one life of Jesus Christ-affected mankind. His life, therefore, is the one life which is well worth, I would say, everyone's effort and time to study. This room should be packed out with a study of this man's life. This one solitary life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth has had an intense An unparalleled impact, not only on the world and its history. I mean, think of the fact that because of Christ, today is September 8th, um, 2003. Our calendars are based on this man's life. So he's had an unparalleled impact, not only on the world and its history, but upon literally millions and millions of individuals' lives, including my own and I hope also including yours. Well, I know including yours, or you wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this one solitary life. And that truth alone should make every person on this planet interested in a study of his life, if for no other reason, uh, perhaps just to see if he is truly who he claimed to be. And who did he claim to be? The Son of God. He claimed to be divine, the second person of the triune Godhead. A close examination of the words and the works of Jesus Christ, such as we're going to be doing in this Life of Christ study, is going to verify for us over and over and over again that he is indeed who he claimed to be and that his life is indeed a life well worth studying because he is not only the creator of all that exists, but he is the redeemer. He is the savior of mankind, and he is the the one and only savior of mankind. So his life... We could say, His life is the one life which has made eternal life available to all lives. Now the title for this introductory lesson to our step-by-step chronological study of the life of Jesus Christ is, as you see in your notes, um, A Life Worth Studying. That's the title for our message. And we're going to be looking at a three-part outline, Holiness Our Goal, our goal will be part one, and we'll look at his, the historicity of the God-man, and then we'll look at the harmony, the harmony of the Gospels. Uh, but in part one, we're going to be looking at or talking about why Jesus' life is worth studying. And one primary reason which we will look at is for our own holiness. Holiness should be our goal. Our own personal holiness should be our goal during this whole study. Um, and this process of holiness being set apart, you know, from sin as much as possible. We'll talk about practical holiness and um, positional holiness. But this process involves two critical steps. First of all, it involves salvation. You can't be holy apart from salvation in Christ. And then the second part is what I've called sameness with Christ. In other words, conformity to Christ. And we'll talk about both of these, beginning with the first one, salvation in Christ, which I've also termed Conversion in Christ. Apart from conversion, or whatever you want to call it, apart from salvation, apart from, what's another term? Being born again. Apart from salvation, I'll call it for now, personal holiness is impossible. Now, to be holy is to be set apart, as I said, from sin. All men, apart from Christ, are sinners and the Bible tells us that says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God Romans 3 23 no sinner can be seen by God as being perfectly and positionally holy we can never ever attain holiness without first being born again as the Lord Jesus himself said in John chapter 3 verse 3 positional righteousness before a holy God is only possible now I'm not talking about our walk our actual walk because we all sin every day but I'm talking about being positionally righteous in the eyes of God is only possible when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl in faith believes that Jesus Christ lived, died and rose again from the dead for his or her sins So acknowledging that supreme truth, a person, you know, then asks Christ for his forgiveness and acknowledges him as both Lord and Savior. And then, and that's when you're born again, when you believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead, and he died, shed his blood for your sins, and you ask him to forgive you for your sins and to come into your life, and as your Lord and Savior, he then saves you. And immediately the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. And then God views you, he views the saved sinner, as uh, being in Christ. You are then in Christ. And all this is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. In other words, Christ's perfect holiness or his perfect righteousness covers the new believer. And so God, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore as a sinner. He sees you covered with the righteousness of his Son. And so therefore you are positionally righteous. So first of all, people need to be saved. Holiness is not gained, it's not obtainable any other way than to be saved in Jesus Christ. So salvation begins with the correct answer a, oops, I had that there, you can look at that for a minute, salvation begins with the correct answer to a question that Jesus himself asked his disciples in Matthew 16, 15. He said, whom say ye that I am? He knows that men and women must first recognize who he is before they can make a decision to follow him. So throughout his earthly ministry, he did and he said things in order to present to the world. His credentials as both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is, as I said before, the world's one and only Savior. It says in Acts 4.12, what? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. The four gospel accounts which begin the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are God's introduction of Jesus Christ, his son, to the world. Those are his introduction of his son to the world. However, not one of those accounts, not one of those four Gospels is complete in and of itself. And none of the four Gospels is in perfect chronological order. Instead, they are what we would say, what we would call thematic In other words, they are each based on a particular theme. John has a basic theme, Matthew has a basic theme, and we'll discuss those this morning. Now, by looking at the life of Christ, as I said in my introduction, by looking at his life chronologically using all four of the Gospels, we're going to have our eyes opened. You'll see this, and I I hope you stick this out because you're going to really be amazed at some of the things that we see. And you're going to be correcting some of your Sunday school teachers and some of your pastors when they say some things because we're going to learn things that, if you don't study the four Gospels chronologically, you don't know. Anyway, um, you're going to see a lot of things in a new and a deeper way than you ever have before. You're going to learn why he said certain things when he said them and why he did certain things when he did them. And it's going to just make uh, Jesus Christ alive to you in in a deeper and richer way than you have ever known in your life. And I promise you that. I guarantee you that. Okay, that's, uh, that's discussing, we just finished discussing salvation in Christ, now we're going to talk about the second part of holiness, and that's what I've termed sameness with Christ, or conformity to Christ. After salvation, after you initially are born again, which makes you positionally righteous before God, you know, he sees you as righteous because he doesn't really see you, he sees Christ you know, in his robe of righteousness covering you. Well, after salvation, our earthly lives are then spent in a progressive um, sanctification process, which is known as practical righteousness. I have up here, if you can see it, um, some of the differences between positional and practical righteousness. By yielding to the Holy Spirit's guidance. You know, once you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you and he guides you. If you yield to him, he will guide you. By yielding to him in being obedient to the word of God, the scripture, we grow in Christ-likeness. And if we're not growing, that's bad. We're supposed to be growing. That's why you're supposed to be in the word every day. You're supposed to be... Looking at the Word and growing in Christlikeness. In other words, we grow spiritually as we progressively attain the mind of Christ. And what better way to learn the mind of Christ than to study His life and His words and His works, right? So we become more and more like Him in our thoughts and in our motives and in our attitudes and our behavior. So the, the second essential step to holiness, personal holiness, is practical righteousness. It says, if you have your Bibles and you want to flip over to, well, I have it up here. If you, if you don't want to uh, look at your Bibles, you can see it up here. Second Corinthians 3:18. it says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the glass is the word of God. It's like a mirror. When we look at the word of God, we behold what? The glory of the Lord. And as we do that, the more we look into the mirror of God's word and behold the glory of the Lord, the more that we are then changed into the same image. In other words, we become more like Christ himself. From glory to glory, we go from one, you know, glory to the other glory, even as by, and who does this work in us? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lord. That is a beautiful verse in Scripture which speaks of um, how we become sanctified. And it should be a lifelong process. We never attain perfect practical righteousness. Until when? Can anybody ever become perfectly holy and never, ever, ever sin? In thought or motive or... Nobody can. I mean, that's impossible. Only the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless life. But we do attain... Practical righteousness when we are glorified, when we die and we see him face to face and we become like him. Now, the amazing truth about which the Apostle Paul wrote in this verse here is uh, the practical righteousness of the believer. We as, as we, as we, as Christians, sincerely, that's what with open face means. In other words, I like to think of it without a mask on, with no hypocrisy. When you look at the word of God, it should be with open face, be completely naked and honest before the Lord. Just like when you look into a mirror, you need to be honest with yourself and what you see, (laughs) you know, so you know how to correct it. So uh, as we sincerely gaze at the glory of Christ as it's revealed to us in the Bible, we are then increasingly changed into his image. And the biblical word for this process is what? I've said it. Sanctification, right? It's a big word, but it just means we become more and more like Christ. Okay, I had a little story, but I'll let you read that for time's sake um, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's a very interesting story, and you can read about it in your notes. It's called The Great Stone Face, so make sure you do read about that. If we want to become like Christ, just like that little story of the great stone face, a man became like that upon which he meditated for years and years. He finally became like the great stone face. Um, If we want to become like Christ, which I hope you all do, we must spend time meditating upon him, contemplating him. And how do we do that? Well, I can't think of a better way than carefully looking at his Life as it is revealed to us in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's exactly what this study is going to be all about, looking at Christ so that our purpose in doing this is so that we become more and more like him. So that's part one of our outline. Holiness is going to be our goal. Now we're going to look at the historicity of the God-man. And I know that sounds like a big word, Oops, I always do this. I get behind on my transparencies. There's a man who is looking into the mirror of God's Word and um, he's in the sanctification process, okay? Now, historicity sounds like a big word. You can go home and impress somebody by using that word, but all it means is that um, somebody actually literally lived in time past. So we want to discuss, did Jesus Christ really live? There are those, believe it or not, who in ignorance think that the Bible is the only document, the only supportive written document that there is to verify the historicity of Jesus Christ. In other words, they think that the Bible is the only historical evidence that there is to demonstrate that there really was such a man as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But that's not the case. That is not true. The Bible is not the only written document that we have to prove that Jesus Christ really lived in time past. There are written documents other than the Bible which also support the literal past existence of Jesus Christ. Now it's important to demonstrate the reality of the life of Jesus Christ because Christianity is the only religion and I don't even like to think of it as a religion I like to think of it as a relationship don't you it really is not a religion 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 is really Satan's tool but Christianity is a relationship it's a personal relationship which we have with God through his son Lord Jesus Christ but let's call it for now a religion it is the only religion which is entirely based on a person on an individual all other religions and all cults are based upon ideas and philosophies which are invented by men and women. A lot of women have been the originators of cults. When one of those men or women die, you see, it, isn't really, it doesn't remain important in future years that that man or woman actually lived. What is important is that her or his idea or philosophy still exists and continues on. They don't care if that person is dead and buried in a tomb somewhere. Or if they even really lived to begin with. That doesn't matter. However, Christianity, as I said, is based on an individual, on a person, not on an idea, not on a philosophy. So if Jesus did not really exist historically, then you and I can't be saved by his life, death, and resurrection, right? Of course not. We can't have a personal relationship with God through him if he never existed. Consequently, it's important to look into the validity of the historicity of the God-man. Now, there are three types of written documents which support the historicity of Christ. In other words, there are three types of written documents which prove that Jesus Christ really literally did live in history past. Of course we know he lived from the beginning of time, before the beginning, and that he will live, he's eternal. He never had a beginning and he never had an end. We know that. But as far as written documentation is concerned, there's three types. There are Jewish documents, there are Roman documents, and there are Greek, uh, and there are um, Christian documents, Jewish, Roman, and Christian. So let's begin by looking at the Jewish documentation that we have. Many non-Jewish people called... What are non-Jewish people called? Right, Gentiles. Do not know what the difference is between the Torah and the Talmud. How many of you don't know what the difference is? Well, let's do it this way. How many of you do know what the difference between the Torah and the Talmud is? Raise your hand. All right, see, I was right then. There's only one hand that I see. Okay, the Torah... Now this is real simple. Just remember this. This It's very simple. The Torah, T-O-R-A-H. I guess this is in your notes, isn't it? Is this in your books? I don't remember. The Torah is the Pentateuch. How many of you know what the Pentateuch is? The first five books of the Bible. We call uh, uh, "Pente" in Greek is five, and um, so it's the first five books that were written under divine inspiration by Moses. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the Torah. So you can use the word Pentateuch and Torah interchangeably. The Jews just happen to call it the Torah. So the Jewish Torah is a God-inspired book, right? Because it's the Pentateuch. So it's God-inspired. The Talmud, on the other hand, is not a God-inspired book. What the Talmud is, is a commentary and an interpretation of the Torah. Just like we have many commentaries on different books of the Bibles, the Bible, um, the, Torah, the Talmud is commentary on the Torah. And um, it took many, many different rabbis many, many years. You know, I thought, wow, it's going to be bad if it takes us eight years to study the life of Christ, but just think of this. It took them 2,500 years <laughs> to write the Talmud which is just covering five books of the Bible. So the Talmud is a commentary on the Torah. And the Talmud consists of 523 books, which take up 22 thick volumes. And that's a lifetime of work right there, just to study the first five books of the Bible. Now, it's interesting, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's interesting to note that the Talmud's Jewish... They were Jewish, the rabbis who wrote the Talmud, which is the commentary on the first five books of the Bible. These Jewish non-Christian authors wrote these words. Here they are. On the eve of Passover, Jesus of Nazareth was hanged. The Jews refer to a crucifixion as hanging because they literally did hang the victims on a cross. So there we have Jewish documentation in their own Talmud, that Jesus of Nazareth actually did exist, right? They say on the eve of Passover, he was crucified, he was hung. Okay, so that's one Jewish documentation. We also have Josephus. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Flavius Josephus? He's a very famous Jewish historian, and uh, he was, most Bible commentators say he was not a Christian. That's hard for me to believe when I read these words, but they, most of them say he was not a Christian. But he was Jewish, and here's what he wrote. He said, And there arose after this time Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we should call him a man. For he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He led away many Jews and also many of the Greeks. This man was the Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross on his impeachment by the chief men among us, those who had loved him at first did not cease, for he appeared to them on the third day, alive again. The divine prophets, having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him, and even now at the end of the first century, the tribe of Christians so named after him have not yet died out. So there we have another written documentation as to the historicity of Jesus Christ, written by a Jew, who the majority of Bible commentators say was not a Christian. But reading that doesn't I don't know. To me, it sounds like he, he believes. He says, this man was the Christ, but I'm not going to argue with the Bible commentators. Okay, so we have, other than the Bible, we do have Jewish, and there is other Jewish documentation, but I'm just giving you a few examples. We do have Jewish written documentation proves that Jesus Christ really did live. We also have Roman documentation. In the year, um, in the year 111 A.D., a Roman named Pliny the Younger, they call him the Younger because there was a Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of Bithynia and Pontus, wrote to the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And he was writing and commenting on the Christian, mor- the moral character of the Christians who lived in his province. And here's what Pliny the Younger wrote. He said, They, speaking of the Christians, sing a hymn to Christ as God. Now, Pliny's letter is the earliest written record concerning Christians, which was written by a pagan. So there we have um, Roman documentation that Christ existed. We also have another Roman named Tacitus. Actually, his full name was Publius Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian and an orator who, by his writings, also documented the historicity of Jesus and don't get you know hung up on that word historicity I always feel like I'm trying to be fancy when I say it you know the fact that he really did live Tacitus himself was not a Christian and you'll know this when I read what he wrote but uh, he he wrote the following here's what he said and notice that he calls Christ uh, Christus because that is the Latin name for Christ he says here Christus the founder of the name for Christians had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius. And the pernicious superstition, see what he calls Christianity? An evil superstition is what he calls it. So we know he's not a Christian himself. The pernicious superstition was checked for a moment. In other words, when Christ died, all the Christians sort of thought, "Uh uh-oh, we've believed in vain. But, and then he says, only to break out once more, not only in Judea, the home of the disease, what does he call Christianity? A disease. But it also broke out in the capital itself, Rome, where all things horrible and shameful in the world collect and find vote. We definitely see that um, Mr. Tacitus was not a Christian. But he did us a favor because this anti-Christian Roman who, who despised Christians did tell us, by his writings, that there was such a man as Jesus Christ. There's another Roman named Publius Lentulus. He was a non-Christian governor of Judea who wrote a particularly interesting description of Jesus to Tiberius, the Roman emperor. And uh, this is just a portion of his letter, but it's very interesting. Listen to what it says. He says, this is an actual... I mean, they have dug this up. They have it. It's an actual description of Jesus Christ by a Roman unbeliever. Here's what he says. There lives at this time in Judea a man of singular virtue whose name is Jesus Christ, whom the barbarians esteem as a prophet. But his followers love and adore him as the offspring of the immortal God. He calls back the dead from the graves and heals all sorts of diseases with a word or a touch. He rebukes with majesty, counsels with mildness, his whole address, in other words, his whole speech, whether in word or deed, being eloquent and grave. No man has seen him laugh, yet his manner is exceedingly pleasant, but he has wept in the presence of men. He is temperate, modest and wise, a man for his extraordinary beauty and divine perfections, surpassing the children of men in every sense. That's quite a testimony isn't it? From a a Roman non-believer that was a letter, that was only part of the letter that he wrote to Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. Well, Suetonius, you can read about him in your notes I'm not going to discuss that. Let's move on to the Christian documentation under the third type of um, written, docu- written, written record that we have to prove that Jesus Christ actually lived, which is Christian written evidence, there are three categories. There are three categories of Christian evidence to prove that Christ really lived. We have the church fathers, um, fathers with a quote around it because the Bible says call no man father, but these are so, some of the church fathers as they're called in Christendom, men such as Clement and Polycarp and Ignatius and Origen and Tertullian and uh, Justin Martyr and on and on. Those men and others like them wrote, I mean, the focus of their writing was on Jesus Christ. So we have their written record to prove that Jesus Christ of Nazareth really did exist. Then another Christian documentation is uh, what we could call archaeology. Archaeology, of course, is the study of past cultures through the discovery and investigation of their relics. You know, we usually think of people digging in the ground and finding things that prove certain things about past history. Well, they have dug up and they have found out all kinds of things that prove everything they dig up. Christianity never needs to fear archaeology because everything they've ever discovered always supports the Bible. It never contradicts the Bible. If it does contradict the Bible, they find out years later that they were wrong and not the Bible. But let me just give you one example of um, something from history, archaeology, that proves the veracity of Jesus Christ, that he really did exist. And that is what some of you probably have on the back of your cars. It's the little sign of the fish. How many of you have one on your back of your car or somewhere? It's called the ichthus, Ichthus in Greek, and I am Greek, so I'll be able to give you the actual pronunciation of these Greek words. Now that we're back in the New Testament, I can use my Greek. Um, When we were in the Old Testament, we've done Genesis. The last four years we've been studying Genesis, and I couldn't help out too much with Hebrew, but I can help you with Greek. The Ichthus ichthus in Greek means fish, okay? Now, it was a... um, In the early church, you know, when the Christians were being martyred, and persecuted for their faith. It was sort of a, uh, a way of finding out if another person was a Christian. It was a secret acrostic which they used. And so you'll find a lot of the signs of the fish, the ichthus, on, on Christian tombs, in the catacombs, and you'll find them, you know... If somebody had a sign of the fish on their tomb, that showed that they were a Christian. But let's say I met Terry, and I never met Terry before, and this was back in the first century, and uh, I wanted to know if she was a Christian. I might be doodling with my charcoal or a piece of sand or whatever they wrote on, and I would, I would maybe scratch a sign of a fish in the sand. Well, if she just didn't pay any attention to that, it would tell me she probably wasn't a Christian. But if she herself wrote back a little sign of the fish, we would know then, we were safe with each other, that she was a Christian and I was a Christian. The ichthus is a really fascinating symbol. I love it. I sold my car that had one. I need to go out and buy another one, stick it on my new car. But um, the, the letters in Greek are I, X, T, H, U, and S. Um, those aren't how they're pronounced in Greek. But the I, Iota, is the word Jesus, which in Greek starts with an I. It's the name Jesus. Jesus is Jesus, so that's what the I in Icthus stands for. The X, which is called a He, stands for Christos, that's Christ. Christ in Greek starts with an X. All right, then the next letter you go to is called a Theta. It is comparable to RTH. TH. It's one letter, but it stands for TH, and that was the acrostic for Theos. And what is it? Does anybody know what Theos is in Greek? God. That's where we get theology, the study of God. So we have so far Jesus Christos Theos, which is Jesus Christ God. And then the next letter is a U, Ichthus, And it's, uh, it stands for Ion, which begins with a U, but it isn't pronounced that way, but you don't need to worry about that. Ion means son. And the last letter is Sigma, which is like our S. It stands for Sotira, which is the word Savior. So what they had in the Ichthus was not only a reminder that they were to be fishers of men, right? Aren't we to be fishers of men? And that's what I always thought of when I saw the ichthus. Oh, that's a reminder I'm to be a fisher of men. But it also stood for Jesus Christ, God's Son, my Savior. So it is a wonderful Christian symbol, and it did, it does, and archaeology has found these all over the place, prove that Jesus Christ really did live. Now, the third type, is um, found in the four gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John they only form one part of the total available um, evidence as to the reality Christian evidence as to the reality of the literal life of Christ and yet Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the four gospels are the primary and they are the most important existence in, uh, evidence in existence and why would that be? We have all this other evidence from archaeology, we have it from the church fathers, but why would Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John be the most important evidence for us? They knew him personally, yes, the main reason is because... They are the only, of all this documentation that we have been speaking of, they are the only ones that are God-breathed, God-inspired. Every word in these four books we can trust in its original uh, manuscripts as being God-breathed. And for this reason, our Life of Christ study is going to center on these, a study of these four accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, none of the four gospel accounts, as I did mention before, either together or individually present us with a complete biography of Jesus Christ? Would it be possible for anyone to write a complete other than God <laughs> to write a complete... doesn't it say in um, is it in John or first John that all the books in the world couldn't contain all that there is to tell us about Jesus Christ? I mean we're spend eternity studying about Jesus Christ so there's no way these four short books could tell us everything there is to know about Jesus Christ None of them contain all of the events of his life, nor are the events that they do contain necessarily in perfect chronological order. But rather, they present to us, for us, four thematic accounts of the life of Christ. The four different writers, each with a different outlook and a different writing style, Selected and arranged their material, of course, under divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit of God, and they did this according to their particular theme and uh, their particular focus or emphasis. And we're going to discuss these different emphases, emphases in a minute. So in this way, each one of them presented a specific portrait of Christ which they, and of course God, were trying to convey to their particular reading audience. And each one of them had a particular reading audience in mind, an original reading audience. And we know, of course, what they wrote was really for the whole world. But when they were originally written, for example, Matthew was originally written for Jews. Mark was originally written for Roman readers. So we'll discuss this. Now, this would be the same idea if, for example, you got four different authors together and they were each going to write a book on the life of George W. Bush. Now, one of those authors might try to might focus on George Bush, the son of a president. And, and, and his reading public might be um, those who want to see what it was like growing up in the family, uh, in such a political family, you know, with a president as a father. Another man, another author, or maybe it would be a woman might write a book on George W. Bush as father and and husband. And so his reading public would be maybe more toward the family-oriented person. Then someone else, the third person, might write a book about George W. Bush focusing on his term when he was governor of Texas. And maybe his reading public would primarily be Southwesterners or Texans. You get my point? The fourth author might write about George W. Bush, President of the United States. So this is what we have. You know, it's the same person. They're all writing about George W. Bush, but there's four different portraits or por- four different focuses fo- focuses focus I, <laughs> on him and there's four different reading um, audiences in mind. Each of the four gospel writers similarly looked at the life of the same man, the Lord Jesus Christ from a slightly different perspective, a slightly different angle. Each one of them also stressed an aspect of the Lord's life which would appeal to a particular group of people which they had in mind. So let's look at that now, starting with the Gospel of Matthew. And here's where we get into some information which may not be in your notes. Some is, some isn't. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And uh, many scholars also believe that the four Gospels, I'll tell you this right up front, are in the right chronological order. Most scholars do believe, now you'll find some that vary on that, but most believe that Matthew was the first of the four Gospels written around 50 AD. Um, And most of them believe that Mark was then the second Gospel that was written. Luke was the third, and John, everybody agrees, definitely, John was the last. Most believe, definitely, that Matthew was the first and John was the last. Now, there's some that disagree on Mark and Luke, and they have those flipped around. But for our purposes, we're going to say that they were written in the same order that we find them in our Bible. Matthew first, Mark, Luke, and then John. So Matthew was the first one, written about 50 A.D., which is only about 20 years or so after Christ's death and resurrection. That's when they flipped the tape. Now, Matthew was, as many of you know, a former, what? Tax collector or publican. Tax collector and publican is the same thing. And what was his name before he was Matthew? Levi. And we find out, not by him, but Luke tells us, Matthew was too modest to tell us this, but Luke tells us that Matthew left everything. And he was very rich. Publicans, the tax collectors were very wealthy. Uh, he left it all in order to follow Christ. Having been a tax collector, Matthew would have been involved. He was, one, he was like an accountant, okay? He, he had a, a mind that was good with math. He would have been involved in large business transactions. And so it's interesting to find that his gospel account does indeed demonstrate that the human author, Matthew, had an interest in numbers. And when we look at Matthew, we're going to see more things to do with numbers than any of the other Gospels. Now, Matthew's particular portrait of Christ centers on the theme of Christ as the sovereign, the, the Messiah King. So you want to put down sovereign king. That's his portrait. Like George W. Bush as president, we would see um, Jesus Christ as sovereign king. He is the Messiah King prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Now, Matthew, it's interesting, he begins his gospel with the genealogical record of the Lord going back through Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people. That's in Matthew 1.1. He, he, he does give us a genealogical record, and that record takes us back to Abraham. One reason for this was because Matthew's original primary readers the ones he was trying to convince that Jesus was Christ, the Messiah, were Jews. So, of course, he would take them back to Abraham because Abraham was the first man to receive the promise from God that the Savior, the Messiah, would come through his lineage. So, if you're writing to Jews and you want to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, you're going to definitely have to show them that Jesus goes all the way back to um, to Abraham, uh, So his primary readers were Jewish. Now, Matthew's account focuses on proving that all the prophecies of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And um, so therefore, the phrase, and you'll find this over and over again in Matthew, you'll find it 16 times, this phrase. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying... You'll find that little phrase 16 times because Matthew wanted to show the Jewish people that Jesus fulfilled this Old Testament prophecy and this Old Testament prophecy and this Old Testament prophecy over and over and over again. And he uses 93 Old Testament quotations. In the book of Matthew, you'll find 93 quotes from the Old Testament. So it's not surprising to find that the key word in Matthew is the word fulfilled. Fulfilled the prominent idea and this you have on the chart I don't think I put this in the notes but it is on that little chart you got the primary idea of Matthew is law now in addition to tracing Christ's genealogy back to Abraham the father of the Jews Matthew also traced the Lord back through King David because David was Israel's model king okay now he wants to show that Jesus is the king So he also traces him back through the lineage of David. More often than any of the other three gospels, Jesus is referred to in Matthew as the son of David, the prophesied Messiah king, who would sit on David's throne forever, forever, forever. This the thematic emphasis, then, is why David's name you'll find in Matthew one one. I don't know if you have your Bibles open on your lap, but in Matthew one you you'll find David's name in the genealogical record appears before Abraham's name. Now, that doesn't make sense because who came first? Abraham came first, and then many centuries later, David. But the reason that Matthew puts David first is because he is presenting the portrait of Christ as David king so he wants to show you that his he is the descendant of king david now his emphasis on the kingship of christ is evidenced in many other ways matthew is very careful for example to present to us the magi you know the wise men bringing gifts fit for what a king you know bring gifts fit for a king to young jesus and also it's matthew who tells us that john it was john the baptist who heralded the king, I'll put that back, while proclaiming that his kingdom was at hand. That's in uh, Matthew 3, 2. Even Satan, in his temptation of Christ in the wilderness in Matthew, is seen offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world. It's only in Matthew's record of Palm Sunday that Zechariah 9.9 9 is quoted, which says, here's what Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Da, da 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 End of quote. So Matthew has often been called the royal gospel. I have that down at the bottom if you can see that. It's called also the kingdom gospel. Christ is called the king of David seven times in Matthew's account. And the word kingdom appears in Matthew 50 times. And the words kingdom of heaven appear 32 times. So what is the focus of Matthew's gospel? Christ as sovereign king. All right. Now, the outstanding feature of the book of Matthew is its sermons, And there are some fantastic sermons in the book of Matthew, such as the Sermon on the Mount, which last time took us a whole year to study, but it was well worth it. Also, we have the Mystery Kingdom Parables Sermon, which is found in Matthew 13. And then there is the fantastic Olivet Discourse, which we'll get to one of these days in Matthew 24 and 25. And all of these, it's interesting that Matthew, Matthew, um, his special feature is sermons, they show to us a man who was very fast at note-taking. And this is exactly what publicans who had to, you know, take records of, of um, important large business transfers, they would have to know shorthand, you know, some kind of shorthand. And obviously Matthew had this ability because he, he has the Lord's sermons almost in, the mo- in way greater detail than any of the other gospel accounts. So Matthew, we think, really knew shorthand. Took those down real fast um, and that's helpful for you right now isn't it? <laughs> any of you who might know short end, trying to write all this down His style was that of a teacher. Matthew is our teacher all right we have other we have a historian and we have um, a preacher but Matthew is the teacher. in fact his account of Christ's life is known as the teaching gospel. He wanted to teach his people the Jews, from their own textbook, which is the Old Testament Scripture, that Jesus of Nazareth was truly, truly their long-awaited Messiah King, the seed of both David and Abraham, and the fulfiller of all messianic prophecy. And this, of course, is why he used so many details and so many references from the Old Testament Scriptures. So that's all I'm going to say about Matthew. Let's move on quickly to Mark. uh, Mark is the same as John Mark, you know, the nephew of Barnabas, about whom we read in many New Testament passages. And he wrote his account with the Roman reader in mind. Now, it's obvious that the original recipients of his account were not Jewish because he had to explain Jewish terms and customs. If he did mention a Jewish term, he had to explain it. Because, see, his primary readers were Romans, and they didn't know about the Jewish terms and customs. Now, the Lord is revealed in the book of Mark as the obedient, suffering servant of Jehovah who gave his life for others in submission to God's will. Now, it's worth mentioning the fact that there is no genealogical record of Christ found in the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. No genealogy. Is the, is, the genealogy, is the genealogy, the ancestral line of a servant important? What do you care about? If you're going to hire a servant, um, what would you care about that? Would you care, uh, care about his bloodline? <laughs> you would just want to know about his works, right? About his... How good of a worker is he or she? So there's no genealogy... You know, the genealogy of a king is important. That's why we find the genealogical record in Matthew... But well, the genealogy of a servant is not very important. What you care about is his actions, his work. So uh, he, he completely omits the first 30 years of Christ's life. There's no mention of Christ's early life in Mark. His readers, the Romans, were people of what? Action. They were, they were real people of action. So the key word in Mark's gospel, which occurs over 30 times, is the Greek word which is interpreted straight away or immediately. You'll find that over and over again in Mark. If you want to circle it when we go through, you'll find over 30 times. Immediately Christ did this, and then immediately Christ did this, and straight away he did this. It's just an action-packed book. It's fast-moving, and it's, uh, we, he shows us that the, it's the servant of God, Jesus Christ, busily doing the work of his Father. So Mark has been called the Gospel of Action. I don't think I have that up there, but it's called the Gospel of Action. Now, the outstanding feature of Mark's Gospel is his record of the Lord's miracles. That makes sense, right? We want to talk about action? Let's see what he did. So the feature is miracles. Unlike Matthew, there's only one sermon given to us in the book of Mark, and that's found in chapter 13. Repeatedly, Mark tells us what Jesus taught. He tells us that Jesus taught. He'll say, and Jesus taught the people. But he will not tell us what he taught the people. He'll just say he taught. We have to go to Matthew to find out what it was that he taught the people. And that, again, is because Mark wanted to stress the works of Jesus Christ, not his words. Mark's style was that of a preacher, okay? And that makes a whole lot of sense when you find out that Mark was a companion of Peter. And by the way, at this time, let me have you flip over to your homework sheet. I can't can't remember what number. Oh, I think it's the last question. The very last question is that, maybe it's number eight. Or is it number eight that has all the lists where you have to fill in which gospel? Okay, look down about, I don't know how many. Oh, I wish I had it. Yeah, let me have it. I, I found a mistake in this, so I want you to correct this right now. In question number eight on your homework page, um, the one, two, three, four, the fourth line down where it says, this book was strongly influenced by Paul. Would you change that to Peter? This book was strongly influenced by Peter. Okay, everybody get that? Thank you. Um, and now I just gave you the answer. <laughs> Mark was a companion of Peter. And Peter was the great preacher, wasn't he? So two of the Gospels we find, two of the Gospels, are you listening? Two of the Gospels, Matthew and John, were written by Apostles, with a capital A, apostles of Jesus Christ. Men who, were, who spent three and a half years walking with Jesus Christ. Matthew and John. The other two gospels, Mark and Luke, were not men who were among the chosen apostles. John Mark was not one of the twelve. And either was Luke. However, Mark spent a lot of time with Peter, who was an apostle. And Mark followed Peter around, and they say, Eusebius, one of the early historians, said that everywhere Peter went and preached, the people couldn't get enough of him. And so they would ask John Mark, will you write down every word that Peter said so we can keep it? So you see, John Mark was following Peter around and writing all this down. And so that's why we have, it's really the gospel of Peter, (laughs) But it, was, it received Mark's name because he literally wrote it. So, um, and then Luke, who do you think Luke spent a lot of time with? No? He didn't. I don't think Luke ever spent any time with the Lord Jesus. He spent a lot of time with Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was a very... And as a matter of fact, he was with Paul when he died. So Luke spent time with Paul. Mark spent time with Peter. All right? Now, some, some Bible commentators claim... As I said, that Peter furnished much of Mark's gospel material. Um, And others say that Mark took notes of Peter's preaching and used those notes to write the gospel. But either way, it doesn't matter because you and I know that the Holy Spirit oversaw the entire composition so that it came out precisely as God wanted it to come out. So we could say that Peter spoke this gospel, Mark wrote this gospel, and the Holy Spirit inspired this gospel. Now, if you know anything at all about Peter, you can probably better understand why the gospel written by Mark is a book of action. <laughs> and he, you know about Peter, right? He's the one that was so impetuous that uh, when, he, when he saw Jesus walking on the water, what did he immediately do without even thinking? Stepped right out of that boat under the stormy sea and uh, made it for a little bit of time till he realized what he was doing. He's also the one that was always putting his foot in his mouth. And what did he do there in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane when they came to arrest the Lord? He took his sword and... Off came the high priest's servant's ear. So this was a man. Peter was a man of action. So you can understand why the book of Mark is a book of action. All right, Luke. Very quickly, we're running out of time here. Luke's the third gospel, and um, it's the third of what we refer refer to as the synoptic gospel writers. The the word synoptic means to see together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call synoptic gospel writers synoptic gospels, because they all saw Christ more from his human side, whereas John is not one of the synoptic gospel writers. He saw Christ more from his divine side. Now, they all saw his divine side, and they all saw his human side, but I'm talking about the focus in the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke was on Christ's humanity, whereas the focus in John is on his deity. So he, Luke is a third of the synoptic gospel writers, and, um, uh, according to the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, the church for at least the first 10 years consisted almost entirely of what kind of people? Jews. The, G- the church of Jesus Christ started out primarily as Jews. So it makes sense that the Holy Spirit first saw fit to inspire Matthew to write his gospel primarily with Jews in mind. And then, you know, as, um, as, as the church progressed and it started to spread out into the Roman world, it makes sense that the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write his gospel with Roman readers in mind. And then it went even further, you know, out from Judea, Samaria, into the outermost parts of the world. And so it makes sense that Luke then was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write his gospel account primarily with the Greeks in mind. Because the Greeks at that time the Greek language was the dominant language of, of the day. And so and and who better to write to Greeks than a Greek himself? Luke is was Greek. And he was also what? What did he do as, as an occupation? Right, he was a Greek physician. Um, Now, he also had a great interest in history, so his writing style is as an historian. So we have a teacher, Matthew, a preacher, Mark, a historian, Luke. Luke was a kind. To be a physician, it's good to have good bedside manner, right? Well, Luke was a very kind-hearted, compassionate, humble, gentle person. And this comes out very much in his writing. So many refer to Luke's gospel as the gospel of individuals. He sees people. Individually, just like his Lord, he was interested in Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know, the parents of John the Baptist. He was interested in Mary and Martha, and in the woman who anointed Christ's feet at Simon the Pharisee's house. He was interested in the uh, tax collectors like Levi and Zacchaeus, in prodigals. He was interested in people of the lower class, such as shepherds out in the field, etc., etc. The gospel of the individuals. is also referred to. It's also referred to as the gospel of women. Because in a world which gave very little place to women, um, Luke, again, just like the Lord, gave women a very special position in his book. Not only did he show um, how God gave great honor to such women as Elizabeth and, and Mary, the mother of Christ, and Anna, the prophetess, but he also wrote many other accounts of women such as uh, the sinful woman who anointed Christ's feet with her tears, Mary Magdalene he talks about, he talks about Joanna and Susanna, of Mary and Martha, um, of the lady who had an issue of blood for many years, and da-da-da-da-da. So he talks a lot about women. So we like Luke, don't we? Okay, the key word of Luke's gospel is son of man. Son of man. It occurs 25 times And the key phrase of Luke is found in 1910, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. That's a key phrase. Luke used the words salvation and Savior many, many more times than any of the other three gospel writers. It's also interesting to discover that Luke used the phrase praising the Lord or praising God more than all of the other New Testament writers put together. So he was a man who praised the Lord. And for this reason, his gospel is also referred to as the gospel of praise. I don't think I have that up there. His primary, do I? Okay. His primary feature was that of parables. Okay, let's have a quick review. Primary feature of Matthew was what? N- no, no, sermons. Primary feature. Yeah, you're talking about the portrait. Primary feature is that what I said, (laughs) of um, Matthew, was sermons. What was the primary feature of Mark? Miracles. Mark, miracles. Mark, miracles. Matthew, sermons. Luke, what? Parables. You will find more parables in the Gospel of Luke than any other one, than any other Gospel. Now, there is a genealogical record of Christ given in Luke. It's important, you see, to have the ancestral record of the Son of Man. Oh, I forgot to tell you the portrait of Christ in Luke is as the Son of Man. And it's important for Luke to include a genealogy of Christ and take him all the way back to the first man. And that's what we find in Luke, that Jesus Christ's ancestral record goes all the way back to Adam. Okay? Let's move and we'll finish up with John. Let's look at the Gospel of John. Oh, he's also, Luke has also got a lot of prayers. It's known as the Gospel of Prayers. Uh, Here we go, John. Okay, John, we know everybody agrees that John's Gospel was the last of the four to be written sometime between 85 and 90 A.D. John was the only apostle who was not martyred for his faith, although he was banished to exile on the island of Patmos. He was the last apostle to die. John presents the portrait of Jesus Christ as the son of God. Okay, Luke was the son of man. John is the son of God. Ninety. Now listen to this. This is why he is not one of the synoptic gospels. He is, John is by himself because 93% of what John wrote in his gospel account is not found in the other three gospels. Now, that makes sense. If you were old John, living in exile on Patmos, and you had Matthew's book and Mark's book and Luke's book, would you bother to repeat what they had written? No, you would write new material. So, 93% of what we find in John is original material, not that we, you know, we don't find it in the other books. There's no genealogy presented for us in John's gospel, and that makes sense because He is presenting Christ as who? As deity. And guess what? There is no baby book for God. There is no ancestral record needed for God because God, in the beginning, was. (laughs) So there's no genealogy for God. He has always been. Um, Now, he does use the words, I am, many, many times. I think ten times we find the words, I am, Jesus himself saying, I am. And that is, again, to show that he is God. Who did God say he was to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus? He said, I am that I am. So John is trying to prove to his readers, who, by the way, are not just the Jews, not just the Romans, not just the Greeks. Who does John write to? The whole world. For God so loved the world. He is writing for the whole world. Of course, they're all writing for all of us but, you know, I told you the focus, but his focus is the whole world. Ten times, Jesus says, I am, so it's referred to as the gospel of I am. Um, So John writes to the lost, he writes to new believers, he writes to the philosopher, he writes to the theologian. In other words, he writes to everybody. And so, therefore, his key word is believe. It appears 98 times in the Gospel of John, the word believe or believed or one form of that word. The emphasized feature of John's Gospel is doctrine. Doctrine. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John stressed the teachings, the doctrines of Jesus Christ. His style of writing, therefore, is as a theologian. And his prominent idea is Christ's glory. The book of John has been referred to as the gospel of revelation since his focus is to show Christ as the very revelation of God himself. It's also known as the the gospel of the word because John speaks of Christ as the word of God. Jesus Christ, you see, is everything that God ever wanted to say to man. In fact, in his son... God did more than speak what he wanted to say to man. He also pictured what he wanted man to see. You see, the Lord Jesus is the expression, he is the thought, he is the idea, and he is the picture of all that God wanted to say to the world. The word of God became flesh to reveal God to man and to redeem man to what? To who? To God. Although each gospel account presents Christ from a different angle and although each one follows its own particular theme, yet each one was really written to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of mankind. And each author, you see, proves this all-important point from his own perspective, from his own focus. Matthew says that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the sovereign king prophesied in the Old Testament. Mark says that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the obedient servant of Jehovah God prophesied in the Old Testament. Luke says that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the son of man Prophesied in the Old Testament. And John writes that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the very son of God himself. He is deity. So the sovereign, eternal son of God is precisely, exactly who Jesus is. He is sovereign God. That's taking Matthew and John's gospel and putting them together. We find he's sovereign God. He's king and God. And he's servant man. That's what you get when you put Mark and Luke together. He's servant man and sovereign God. In other words, what do we find out when we put all four Gospels together? He's not only 100% man, but he is 100% God. He is the God man. And he is our Savior. So his life, ladies, is definitely going to be worth studying. Right? right thank you for your patience let's close in a word of prayer father god oh how we do thank you so much that christ was human and yet he was divine because the necessity for him to be both is very very apparent if he had not been man he could not have died in our place because we are all men and women we are flesh we are humans and he could not have understood us he could have not uh, he could not have uh, sympathized with us and understood how we feel uh, nor could he have died and shed his blood and paid the wages for our sin on the other hand we understand that if he had not been god he would not have been without sin himself and therefore he could not have saved us so father we do join our hearts together this morning to praise and thank you for the wonderful, dynamic uniqueness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer, Lord, for this study of his life is that those of us who do know him would grow to know him in an even deeper and richer and more meaningful way, that we would come to love him as we have never, ever before loved him. And Lord, also my prayer would be that if there is one among us who has never received positional righteousness by putting her faith and trust in his life and death and resurrection on her behalf and asking for his forgiveness, I pray, Lord, that she would do that this very day. Receive your Holy Spirit within her and be born again. Know that she will spend eternity in your presence. Father, again, I thank you for every woman here. I pray, Lord, that you will bless her this week, help her to set aside the time to do the nine homework questions. Um, that are in the homework for us this week. And I pray she'll have a blessing by digging into the word herself. And Lord, I do pray that we'll bring back many new women next week. And we do pray these things in Christ's name for his sake, for his glory. Pray, amen. Thank you.